and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. Once again, some amazing science for your listening purposes. And of course, with me is Stu. Stu, what have you got today? Look, I'm going to be jumping back into the AI world because the developments are coming thick and fast in the world of artificial intelligence in the moment. Um, and there's you know, some some issues that people are bringing up that, you know, maybe the, the rapid development we're seeing at the moment is actually about to hit a wall. There's there's kind of limitations to how much better AI can get. But some uh, other branches of research have come up with some potential solutions to, to overcome these barriers, which might sound like something ripped from the pages of a science fiction novel or uh, screenplay if we get into it, but I'll, I'll explain exactly what I'm talking about when we get to that story. My name is Chris, and this week on the show, I'll be talking to Dr. Julie McInnes, who is one of the co-founders and co-directors of the Macquarie Island Conservation Foundation. This is a new organisation that's been set up to support research on Macquarie Island, Australia's very own sub-Antarctic island, which, of course, is recovering after over 200 years of human occupation. Uh, I should point out, as we know, there has never been any Indigenous occupation of this island, so it's all just been... I guess, Western occupation and pests and things for the last 200 or so years. And yeah, they're looking at supporting research and promoting awareness of this, I suppose, remote island that belongs to Australia. So we need to take care of it because it is our responsibility. So yeah, stay tuned to find out more about this mysterious southern island. What are you onto? Anything of interest to the scientific community? Together, you and I are going to make the greatest single contribution to science since the creation of fire. It's a big scientific experiment. What do I know? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. Artificial intelligence is everywhere in the news at the moment uh, as new versions of chat programs and art generators are astounding and worrying people with their rapidly improving output. Most of these programs are not true what we would call general intelligence, but they're rather machine learning that's been trained on data and they're all designed to give results that are more or less realistic in comparison to human work. They're giving results that look like work that a person has done. That's what they're specifically designed to do. And let's, let's be frank now, here, they, they're really good at it. Like they're, they're freakishly good at it in some of these things and do better than most humans think they're capable of doing, certainly. And the stuff they're doing is things that a few years ago, I think we would have said, Oh no! This is what humans can do. Robot, you know, machines will never be able to do this, or won't be able to do this for a long time. They're actually they're really impressive in that in that sense. If you look at the the big picture, yeah, I mean, absolutely they are. And you know, it is this is fundamentally what they're designed to do. They're designed mm. to mimic human stuff. So you know, that, that's specifically what they're made for. So that they're, they're good at they're good at what they're designed for. I guess it also means that we're kind of a bit predictable in what we find impressive as well, which is kind of built into their design. True. Gen- Generalized intelligence is a long way off using machines. And it's often pointed out that any computer is still a long way off competing with a human brain for calculating power and that sort of thing. There's a paper in Frontiers in Science from last month that does a side-by-side performance and specification comparison of the Hewlett-Packard Enterprise 
Frontier Supercomputer, if you want to look that up. It's the world's biggest and fastest computer, and they compared that to a human brain. They're pretty well matched, I'll be honest. But look, as far as performance, computers are measured for performance in what is called floating point operations per second, the abbreviation being FLOPS. So the Frontier computer can hit about 1.1 exaflops, or 10 to the power of 18, or a bit more than a billion billion flops. The human brain can do about one exaflops. So pretty comparable, really, if you think about, you know, if you're comparing the two, mm. the, uh, the supercomputer is only slightly faster at processing. The human brain is, I think, pretty impressive in that the human brain does it on about 20 watts of power. Uh, the Frontier supercomputer requires more than a million times that power level requires 21 megawatts of power to do the same thing. So efficient, yes, the human brain. Um, the Frontier computer contains about 145 kilometers of cabling and takes up 680 square meters, while a brain is small enough to fit in a head, weighs less than a kilo and a half, uh, and contains around... 850,000 kilometers of axons and dendrites, which are basically organic equivalent of cabling. So, you know, the, the brain's a pretty impressive little uh, device to have. Um, the human brain can also store about 2.5 petabytes of information, which is, you know, to use an old outdated system of measurement, just for our American listeners, about 50,000 Blu-ray discs of data uh, that the human brain can store. Obviously, the Frontier supercomputer can be effectively expanded to have a much bigger memory range than the human brain because it's not really any, any limit to that. Although you'd have issues with recall and that sort of thing because you'd have to keep adding storage. But anyway, the human brain is still a very impressive processing and analysis tool and is in no danger of being surpassed by electronic replacements anytime soon. But this in mind, uh, some scientists have started to look at things the other way around. If, if human brains are such powerful computing machines, why not build them into digital infrastructure? What? Now this, this field of study is known as organoid intelligence or OI, and it's based on the idea of using actual living brain cells arranged in 3D organ-like structures to interact with computer hardware. Now, computer hardware for artificial neural networks, which is what current AI systems are based on, is approaching its theoretical limits, apparently. Improvements are coming slower and in smaller increments with associated increases in energy consumption and processing times. So they've kind of got to the point where the hardware is not keeping up with what the engineers want the software and the, and the AI to do. So in a preprint article on BioArchive, and this is a preprint, as you know, there are issues associated with that, as we've discussed before on the show, scientists based at Indiana University in the United States have claimed to have developed what they call and this does sound like something from a sci-fi movie, Brainoware. Brainoware is a computer chip with living human brain tissue built in. How do they spell Brainoware? 
brain o where like there's a little hyphen in between the no there's there's not and i think you know i feel like they should have called it the brain o where 3000 or something yeah yeah totally give it that give it that 50s retro kick um but this article's not peer-reviewed, as I said. It's not been fully checked. But they also claim to have used these biological neural networks to solve non-linear equations. So they've actually got these functional already. So they're, they're using the, the uh, brain organoids to do the processing of the, um, of the actual computer, which is kind of pretty uh, amazing and... Um, also slightly worrying, I suppose. Um, now, brain organoids have been studied for some years now, and we have done stories about organoids. This is where they get uh, tissues and they grow them uh, in vitro into organ-like structures. They're 3D structures which can f- have some of the functions of an actual organ. Now, other researchers have been using brain organoids to investigate neurological problems in humans by basically making organoid clones of the human brain and then they can conduct experiments on these organoids which you probably wouldn't be able to get ethics approval to conduct on human living patients. So they're able to test things and test drugs and do all these different um, experiments on the organoids without having to do them on a patient directly. Now, I seem to recall that in some of this research, they've been surprised by the, I guess, the abilities of these organoids. And people have raised the ethical kind of conundrum of, you know, what if they were essentially to get big enough that they become a brain and can be intelligent themselves. Um, is that, would that be a problem? And people, and of course the researchers are going, oh no, 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 we're not doing that. We're just using like a small number of cells for these kind of experiments, like you're saying, but now people are plugging them into computers and trying to make them intelligent. Does that raise some ethical problems in itself? Well, I mean, yes, of course it does, because you know, if if you are if you are effectively growing brain tissue, at what point do these organoids become an organ? Because a functioning, you know, functioning brains come in all shapes and sizes. Even if you just look at mammals, you've got little tiny mammals like rodents and things like that, which have functioning brains, all the way up to, you know blue whales or whatever is the biggest brain uh, in in the mammal uh, kingdom um, or, you know, superclass, whatever they're actually called. Um, yeah, if, if you, how, how big does a brain organoid have to be before it's just a brain? Mm. And if it is just a brain, does it, could it develop awareness? Could it sense pain? Could, could it actually, you know, be could we be causing it suffering by by using it in this way and that is a big question and they you know at some point this is going to have to be dealt with before work can continue down this uh organoid intelligence pathway um it's all very well to just say oh we're just using a few synapses here and there or just we you know just using tiny little brain segments but yeah at some point it is going to get to 
to be an issue of saying that there's going to have to be a limit of how big you can grow an organoid before we say, yeah, no, no, it's actually getting too close to being an organ, I suppose. Um, now, the, the reason that people are doing this kind of work or, or one of the reasons is to accelerate that work. So that, that sort of neurological research using organoids, they're saying maybe they could combine that with some of this uh, organoid intelligence systems and, and have the organoids communicating with the AI systems and that the feedback between the two would enhance the process. I kind of feel like that in itself is a bit of an issue is if, if the if the researchers are no longer in control of how it's developing and you're getting the organoid to help develop the AI and the AI to help develop the organoid intelligence, at what point is it not under anyone's sort of supervision anymore? And that's another issue in itself there. But look, uh, you know, the, the idea that, you know, the, the biological uh, neural networks, which is what they're calling them, can actually, you know, they're, they're sort of already built to be able to sense things as well. So you don't have to have, you know, environmental sensors. You could just have these organoids providing that sensory feedback to the artificial neural networks. And then you'd have these kind of um, communication complexes, including both AI and OI intelligences working together. Uh, the The... I kind of feel like, yes, the field of this biocomputing, which some people have called it, might allow uh, some of the limiting barriers to be broken in AI and improving performance of AI. And it may also completely change the way computers are designed and constructed and what they can be used for and how we uh, approach the whole issue of artificial intelligence. And, you know, it, it is kind of a, it is kind of a, it is an inversion of the whole process is that, you know, we've tried to be, we've been creating or trying to create artificial intelligence. We've gone, well, the brain's really good at doing intelligence. And so they've gone back to the brain itself. Is that artificial intelligence then, or is that just intelligence as we already knew it when you start building brain organoids into computers? It's, it's a very interesting and possibly confusing field to get stuck into. But, uh, you know, I, as I said, it does feel like we are getting step-by-step step closer to actual cyborgs all the time. And just thinking back to your story, you know, maybe we could build a robot to test your, your swing pumping theory. But, hey, maybe we could also make it happy that it's having a good time on the swing as well. I was just thinking that, you know, people worry about the computers stealing our jobs. Well, we could be stealing their jobs if we're using, going to use human brains <laughs> as some more efficient computers. <laughs> I think we're lost. We're not lost. Not even any short-range radio signals yet? Except for a single, very powerful, radio emission. Of course, a transmitter of that sort isn't exactly standard equipment. The science and technology must be absolutely mind-boggling. Of course, that's uh, it's mostly on the theoretical side. What so far? Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science.
Okay, yes, you are listening to Lost in Science, and I have with me on the phone Dr. Julie McKinnis from the newly established uh, Macquarie Island Conservation Foundation, and she is one of the co-founders and directors of this Macquarie Island Conservation Foundation. Uh, Julie, thanks for joining us on Lost in Science. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me on the show, and uh, it's my pleasure. Now, um, I have a lot to ask you about uh, Macquarie Island and the Conservation Foundation. But first of all, where is Macquarie Island? Yeah, Macquarie Island is part of Tasmania, so part of Australia, and it's around 1,500 kilometres southeast of Tasmania. So it is counted as what's known as the subantarctic. So it's down at around 54 degrees south. So it's pretty much halfway between um, Tasmania and Antarctica. Right. So sub-Antarctic means, doesn't mean it's below Antarctica, because that doesn't make a lot of sense. It just means it's not quite in the Antarctic region. Is that what it means? That's right. Um, I guess it's, you could say it's below the latitudes of Antarctica, because um, we are in the, the 50s, whereas Antarctica is around the 60s and 70s. So I guess as a technicality, maybe we could go with that. Yeah, that sounds good. Now, and what's it like? What's Macquarie Island like? Because I understand you've been there, haven't you? I have. I've been very fortunate to spend a number of summers and a winter down on Macquarie Island. And it's an incredible place. So it's about a long slither of island that's about 35 kilometres long and about five kilometres wide at its widest point. And there's no trees down there. So this is a, a tussock-covered uh, island. And it's really ruled by the wildlife down there. There's a small number of humans that go down each year um, that winter down on the station, the Antarctic Division's research station down there. But otherwise, the island is, is the home of millions of seabirds and thousands of seals. And it's a very windswept location, so it has what's known as the furious 50s winds um, based on the latitude that the island sits. And these winds scour and shape the island. And so this is one of the reasons that trees don't go well down there. And so you've got this tussock-covered island um, and up on the top of the island, it's essentially a, it's got coastal terraces and then a steep escarpment up onto an undulating plateau that at its highest point is only just over 400 metres. So it's not a, a super high island. Um, but up on the top, you've just got these sort of tundra and gravelly areas where you've got cushioned plants and small um, herbs that live up there. So it's a fairly interesting location. So down on the coast, it's just teeming with life. And then up on top... It's a much quieter location where the wind really is the one that rules up there. Right. And what sort of unique flora and fauna is found on Macquarie Island? Yeah, given its location, so Macquarie Island is quite a long way from other islands. Um, and so from this perspective, it's a really important breeding ground for a lot of seabirds and seals. And so there's a couple of endemic species. So this means that they're found, you know, they breed nowhere else in the world. They're only found on Macquarie Island. And... Two examples of that from the, the fauna is um, the endemic royal penguin. So this is the only site that the royal penguin is found. And also um, the Macquarie Island cormorant or Macquarie Island shag. There's also a number of um, plant species that are found only on Macquarie. Uh, for example, the azarella, which is the Macquarie Island cushion plant. And this is actually critically endangered, um, but it's an incredible um, cushion that we do find similar types of plants up in the alpine zone um, in Australia. And they're, they're these dense um, green-covered um, vegetation that sort of will spread across this escarpment area. 
And so it's very unique in not just the, the species that are there, but the intense congregations of these species. So I, I mentioned that it's quite a small island, really, in the scheme of things. Um, and there's millions of penguins and, and seabirds, other seabirds that live on this island. So you get these intense congregations of 150,000 birds in one colony. And so you can just imagine the noise and the, um, the sight of one of these areas. And this is one of the reasons it's so important. Um, if anything massively changes in this ecosystem, then it can have fairly um, catastrophic impacts for these species that rely on this site to call home. They can't just move around the corner to the next island. So for that reason, it's, it's a very important site. And it is actually it's for, for part of this rationale that it's listed, listed under the World Heritage, on the World Heritage List. And the other reason is the incredible geology on the island. It's the only place uh, in the world, island in the world, where you can find um, the Earth's crust with a mantle above sea level. So for these wow. two reasons, the congregations of wildlife and the geology, it is World Heritage listed. So a very special site. Absolutely. And but like you said, though, some of the, the plant species, at least, are critically endangered. So what are the threats to Macquarie Island? Yeah, look, there's a range of threats. I guess I'll give you a little bit of a background of um, some of the things that have been achieved um, before we move on to what's sure. happening at the moment, yeah. because I think we've got to also celebrate the successes that have been achieved on this island. So Macquarie Island historically um, was first discovered in the sealing era. So um, when people first discovered the island, they they saw that seals as a resource um, for both oil and for their pelts, for their skins. And so the, they came in and they pretty much wiped out the fur seal population, decimated the elephant seal population and the king penguins, um, and hit the royal penguins quite hard as well for oil. But with them, they brought a range of um, exotic species, I guess you could say. So there was cats, rats, mice, rabbits. So the rabbits were there as a supplementary food source. Then there was also the New Zealand weka, uh, which is a flightless predatory bird that came to the island as well. And there was also goats and, and horses and the like. Now, over the years, um, all these vertebrate pests have now been eradicated. So Tasmanian Parks and Wildlife Service had done an incredible job over the years to remove these species. And in 2014, the island was declared pest-free from these vertebrates. That's incredible. Yeah. It is incredible. And... To see it um, in the height of the rabbit erosion and then to see it again um, a few years later was just a sight to behold. You know, these tussocks that were, um, you know, these surfaces of, um, of ground which were just dirt um, are now this tussock wonderland. So I think it's, it's amazing the, the recovery of the island and we're starting to see burrowing petrels. So these are a small seabird that lives underground. Uh, like your seawaters, um, and they're coming back to the island in, in great numbers because of rats and mice that were driven to just offshore islands. So we're seeing this ecosystem really changing, vegetation's coming back, wildlife's looking really good. But this is all on the backdrop of, um, as we know, global environmental changes. We're seeing extreme changes to the rainfall um, across the globe, and Macquarie Islands. Um, not immune to these. So we're seeing changes in the climate, increases in rainfall intensity particularly, and changes in temperature, and also changes into the ocean around it, which a lot of these species rely on for their resources. So the question is, what's going to happen going forward? And this is um, one of the things that I guess a lot of people are, are asking and wanting to look into, is, is what's the next threat for these 
these species, both the terrestrial and the marine species? And is there anything we can do and understand going forward? Right. So what kind of research programs then are you looking at running through the, the foundation? Like what are its aims? Yeah, look, the aim is, um, the, the broad aim, the lofty aim, is um, that Macquarie Island can be um, protected, um, the natural and heritage values um, can be protected from threats um, for future generations. Now that's obviously a fairly broad lofty aim, but what we're hoping to do is fund and facilitate science and research programs on the island and, and really support um, management initiatives. So this will be through student projects, um, outreach activities, you know, trying to let people know where Macquarie Island is and, and why it's important. And also allow people to get a little bit of ownership of the island. I mean, it is Australian, it is Tasmanian, and it, it is some, somewhere on the map that a lot of people don't know about. And I guess if we can help people understand where it is and why it's important, then there's that sense of, um, of compassion to actually do something um, to protect these these um, these particular flora and fauna. Now, what we're, we're hoping, we've got these two, what we're calling big sort of umbrella priorities at the moment that we'd like to focus on over the next number of years um, to raise funds for. And this is around looking at that ecosystem recovery. So like I said, um, this eradication was the largest island eradication that's been done globally. And it's an incredible effort. And we're seeing these species, in many cases, come back and thrive. But we're also wanting to support ongoing monitoring so we can learn from this and, and for other sites, um, be implemented in other sites globally. And the other is to understand what are the impacts of climate change on Macquarie Island going forward. How are these species, both flora and fauna, adapting um, or being impacted by climate change? But also the heritage on the island as well. So there's a number of things um, from the sealing days um, that are still on the island and, and how they've been impacted by changes in um, um, surges, ocean surges and um, erosion down there as well. So they're sort of the big two priorities and we're hoping to raise funds for those and we'll have more targeted projects going forward that fit under these aims. But they're the two big sort of pillars, I guess you could say, for the foundation at the moment. Yeah, fantastic. So how can people find out more and support you? Yeah, look, we've got a website, um, www.macquarieisland.org. Um, we'd love you to come and check out the website. It's got a lot more about the island, about our funding priorities, and also ways that you can contribute. Um, you can become a member, um, and also there's opportunities to volunteer with the foundation. Um, these are all uh, Australian-based or um, mainland-based activities. Are you not sending people down to the island? No, no, not at this stage. <laughs> um, so we're really trying to facilitate um, this work at the moment. So there's a number of um, organisations that are really well set up for doing the work on the island, both state, federal government and universities. So we're trying to find um, ways to supplement some of the work that's happening down there already. And also there's initiatives through things like um, the Botanic Gardens here in Tasmania that are looking at seed banks and so forth for protecting um, species diversity on the island. And so there's a number of projects around the place that are just really crying out for funding and we're hoping we can provide that and also provide people a way to, with people, a way that they can connect to the island. So we have tourists going to the island each year um, and the question is how can we support um, the island? How can we contribute? And currently through state and federal government there isn't that mechanism and so we hope mm -hmm. that maybe by setting this up we can provide that avenue for people to support the island and, and be part of something that's pretty amazing and um, a very special place for all Australians.
Fantastic. All right. Well, um, best of luck to you and the, the foundation. So I encourage people to check out the, the website and find out how you can support and get involved. And that is, yeah, MacquarieIsland.org. Uh, Macquarie is M-A-C, Quarrie Island. Uh, thank you for, again, for joining us, Julie. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Chris. And that is all we have time for this week on Lost in Science. Thank you for joining us in Getting Lost. If you have any questions or suggestions for the team, get in touch with us by email. We are lostinsci at gmail.com. You can send cheap tweets to us at lostinscience1 on Twitter, or you can find us on the ubiquitous Facebook Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne on the land of the Kulin Nation and is broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find a podcast version of the show on 3cr.org.au or you can tune in the way you did this week when we return in our usual time slot to get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.